Welcome to Adulting on the Spectrum. I am Andrew Comro, an Autistic Certified Financial Planner. I co-run Adulting on the Spectrum with my host, Eileen Lamb. Hey, Eileen. Hey, Andrew. I'm Eileen Lamb. I'm an autistic author and photographer from France. And in this podcast, we want to highlight real voices of autistic adults, not just inspirational stories, but people like us talking about their day-to-day life. Basically, we want to give a voice to a variety of autistic people. <laughs> today, today, our guest is Dolly. Dolly is a proud graduate at University of South Florida's Masters of Clinical Social Work program and is now a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Florida with a pending doctorate in clinical sexology. Dolly is passionate about helping those with sexual health and wellness issues, anxiety, eating disorders, trauma, and grief. As an individual on the spectrum herself, Dolly also specializes in intersectional and inclusive autism spectrum disorder evaluations and therapy. Dolly's affirming and empathetic approach to therapy will help you gain a sense of normalcy, help you dig deeper, and help you make the change you desire for permanent happiness in the long term. And that's so beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Reminded me of a drug commercial, right? Just at the end, in a good way, like, like a Zoloft commercial. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Hi, Dolly. Thanks Hi. for joining us today. Thanks for having me today. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> All good. We start our podcast, Dolly, by asking our guests how they like to identify. And what I mean by that is mm-hmm. what pronouns do you use? And yes. what is your uh, preference when it comes to autism identity, person with autism, autistic on the spectrum, all of that? So I use she, her pronouns, um, and I don't really care. <laughs> I am, I'm proud to be autistic. You can call me anything you want. Heard lots of different things this past couple of years, so I just... Just like to be part of the community in some way and just happy to be here in general. <laughs> so whatever you want to say is fine with me. So our first question, when and how did you get diagnosed? What do you think about the process, um, the good and the bad? Mm, fantastic question. And this is a very complicated question, I think, for all of us, um, especially for me personally, because I'm also a clinician. So I feel like there's some layers to that one. But for me personally, um, I was in the middle of my master's degree program for clinical social work. So one would think that if you're autistic, you would be able to identify at this point that you could be on the spectrum, given that this is part of your education. (laughs) That was not the case for me. Um, In fact, in the my social work program specifically, there was not a lot of education at all about autism, which is very sad. Um, We kind of had very short kind of glossing over it from when we worked on the DSM and that was the only mention of autism that we had. So that's very disappointing in hindsight. But one day in the middle of my program, I'm just hanging out at my house and my best friend of 10 years comes to me and she's like, so um, I have something really personal I wanna share with you. I've been really afraid to tell people about this. And she's 38 at the time, 38 years old at the time. And she says, I have been recently diagnosed with autism. And I was like, whoa, like, first of all, I'm halfway through my master's program at this point. I'm pretty clinically good. I can handle myself clinically. Um, and here's my best friend that I've known for so long. I'm like, how did I miss this? I'm like, you know, tell me everything about it. And she's like, well, before we get into that, um, there's some things that I've noticed <laughs> that are very similar between the two of us. And I just want to share this. And if you're open to it, I don't want to, you know, offend you in any way. I'm like, what? And then she just started kind of word vomiting all these things that she has noticed about our friendship and about our time working together. Cause we worked together as coworkers at one point um, and just about our life in general and my life in general. And she's like, so um, maybe you should look into this for yourself. And I said, there's no way I'm not autistic. And I listed off all the things that one would come to know as quote unquote autism based off of like movies and whatever we know. And, and she's like, no, 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 that's not how that works for women. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? And she really went into it and showed me some screeners and showed me some of her diagnostic process and all of that. And I was like, whoa, I, I, 
felt like this really weird like tunnel vision and I was like this how can this even be my life I'm in my late 20s like this is not even how how can I have missed this for all these years and she's like the, the system stacked against us and so because of her I started exploring this part of myself and was you know, pretty sure, but still kind of having this like imposter syndrome about it. And then um, I had to go all the way to North Carolina to see a specialist for adult women on the, on the autism spectrum and did a grueling weekend. Um, a lot of pre-work ahead of time, a lot of interviewing. I had to bring my, my wife. And then I also brought my best friend um, just to have, you know, multiple environments represented during the evaluation. And after the evaluation, she's like, yep, you're autistic. And I was just couldn't believe it. Even today in my thirties, I still sometimes can't believe it. I still get this like imposter syndrome because, you know, there's just not enough out there that's accepting of all different types of people on the spectrum. You know, I am quote unquote high functioning. And anytime I tell people, a lot of the times they get the, Oh, you must be high functioning or, Oh, you're, you just be a little bit autistic. And it just drives me crazy because the more I learn about autism, the more I learn about myself, I'm just like, Oh, like <laughs> it doesn't work this way. And it just makes me feel like I have to mask more and more, but I'm slowly trying to break down those barriers and become more comfortable with myself and my diagnosis. And now in my thirties, now being an actual licensed clinical social worker, I want to give back to my community because the process to get diagnosed for me, and I'm a privileged white woman, I was able to do that, but that's not accessible to a lot of people. And so I just wanted to be able to work within my community to spread the word and to be accessible to parts of the community that may not have the opportunity to find an actual diagnosis. They may be able to self-diagnose, but there's a lot of stigma regarding that. And I know that having my diagnosis, even with my imposter syndrome, I'm still able to look back on that and say, okay, I may not be believing it right now, but there is that piece of paper and there are these screeners and I did score pretty high. So I must be autistic and it's okay. I can be autistic. And so that's, that's how I got to where I am right now. That's amazing that you were able to get a professional diagnosis. I know it's not, um, it's not easy for for everyone, especially when we're adults and women, uh, mm -hmm. for, for instance, I, I went through the, the same process you did, very similar. Uh, what, uh, what advice would you give someone who's looking to, you know, into getting a diagnosis or they're, they're wondering about themselves, if maybe they're on the spectrum, what, what advice would you give them? Um, I tell my clients this, I tell anyone I come in contact with this, and that's a fantastic question. It's don't give up. At the end of the day, you know yourself best. There are a shocking number of terrible clinicians out there. And I'm, I'm sorry, community, but a lot of you are really, really bad at what you do. Every day, I get a ton of clients who are just like, oh, I had this experience or that experience. And it's very sad. And it's very tragic. And at the end of the day, if you've done your research, and you identify with these things, and it means something to you to have this label, and you find empowerment with it, run with it. Like, don't give up. If you have a clinician that's not hearing you or maybe may not be as educated in certain areas because of your gender or because of your age or a number of other factors, there'll be a clinician out there who will do it for you. Not that they'll just give you a diagnosis, but there will be an educated clinician out there who will provide an evaluation that is accurate and precise and will meet you where you're at and actually pay attention to you and listen to you and give you what you need. So my advice will be don't give up. You know, you know who you are at the end of the day. Nobody can tell you what your experiences are and how you've grown up in life. Now, question, at what point, though, for some, you know, because, you know, it kind of goes both ways, right? Mm -hmm. Because then you also hear, you know, other people who are not really autistic be like, oh, well, I'm a little, I may be a little bit on the spectrum myself, right? Yeah. Or, you know, use it as, oh, I have some of these traits. Well, mm -hmm. you're human, so you share some human traits, right? Yeah. Um, you know, but at what point if somebody goes for a diagnosis and they get 
you know, a different one or multiple. What are your thoughts on when is to know when you've got the right clinician and the right diagnosis? Mm -hmm. And what are your thoughts on self-diagnosing and sharing that? Yeah, um, very good questions. Um, So this is tough um, because, again, you do know yourself best. Um, I and I can only speak from my perspective as me as a clinician, how I evaluate and all of that. But I'm very upfront from the very beginning. This is the criteria. You can't just be a little bit autistic, right? You can't be a little bit of something in one area. You have to meet criteria across all environments, across your entire lifespan. And so a good clinician will take your screeners and use it as a jumping off point because we're human, right? I'm sure we've all done it before where we've read something like a horoscope, right? And you're like, oh, that that sounds like that could be me, right? And so with a screener, that really is just um, your specific perspective that we take and run with, right? We use it as part of our um, our questioning period, right? So you may read something and think, oh, that's definitely me. But then when I ask you questions about, okay, that's you, what about at this time? What about here? What about now? And then we start breaking down some of those, you know, questionable periods to really find the accuracy of your experience. Um, at the end of the day, for me personally, I do have very precise and very um, um, expansive evaluations because I don't want there to be any questions. You know, I want to say at the end of the day with like a 40 page evaluation that we did every screener, every question, identified every single environment, every single opportunity that we can to review to make sure that you have no questions, you know, like me, I want to make sure there were no questions. I don't feel that imposter syndrome. And so sometimes, I mean, if, if you feel the end of it, that you're not getting what you want, that's a conversation I will have from time to time. And I'll be honest with them. Okay. Why is it so important if you have the autism diagnosis specifically and not an accurate diagnosis for yourself? Let's break that down for a minute. But a lot of the times it is just someone who has been shuffled from provider to provider and haven't had the right voice to advocate for them at that point. So I, thankfully it's more rare that I get someone who's just so focused on the autism diagnosis itself and not actually the truth. I know you're not on social media uh, much, but there is a community of autistic adults out there. Uh, or suspected autistic, who think that uh, their sense of self and is more important than a professional, basically that they know themselves better than a professional. Therefore, if they think they're autistic and the internet tells them they're autistic, the professional is wrong. And I think that's yeah. kind of where we're getting at. Mm-hmm. Like, where is the line between yeah. it's a privilege to get a diagnosis, yes. agreed because of money and other factors, yes. but at the same time, you do not know uh, yeah. better than a professional in most cases, yeah. you know? And, and I definitely, ugh, this is so tough because as a human who is also a social worker. So in my heart, I care and I'm compassionate. Of course, I would want anyone who doesn't have that access to a, a formal diagnosis to just say, you know what, this is what I feel and that's what I'm going to roll with. And that's lovely. However, as a clinician, as a professional, there are so many factors that come into play and so many different differential diagnoses that could be in play too. Like it may not be autism. You may be checking off a lot of boxes, but it could be a different sensory disorder. It could be so many other things. And so um, the issue is at the end of the day, the, the, the industry is broken. Like we need to be able to offer accessible, um, educated clinicians to the masses so that people don't have to rely on a self-diagnosis. Um, it's, it's hard for me to get behind a self-diagnosis, even though I know that's important for the community. I'm very much split in the middle as a human and also as a clinician, but the, self, the self-diagnosis is tough for me. Well, I, I think you said it really well. You said yeah. when somebody's asking you to come for a diagnosis, you said, well, why is an official diagnosis important to you? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think the answer to that is pretty you know, important. Um, there's one thing to like diagnose it for yourself and 
not tell anyone else. And yeah, just to feel empowerment within yourself. And that's great. Let's work on therapy. Let's get you all the skills you need to communicate to, you know, feel better in social situations, what have you. But, um, you know, a lot of it's like test accommodations or to have conversations with family or like just to feel legitimate in some way. So, you know, wait, wait, wait. I thought getting diagnosed as autistic later in life was so you could yell at parents on the internet. Are you telling me that's not the reason we seek out a diagnosis? Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Me personally, um, I had enough to go on to feel okay with a self-diagnosis. I'm a clinician. I did all the research. I did screen. It's great. I could, I could be okay with that and then not tell anyone, but it got to a point where I had been, I've been masking my whole life. I'm still masking now. I'm asking now in this interview, (laughs) like I just, I'm really struggling at this point in life to learn how to turn that off. And that's something I'm personally working on with my own therapist is how to turn off the masking and be comfortable with being myself around people. And I feel like that started with my official diagnosis. I felt like a liar until that day in North Carolina, when I was given that piece of paper and said, no, this is, this is true. And I was like, wow, I can't like this piece of paper allows me to go to my mother, my family and say, Hey, I'm not making this up. I'm not just being dramatic. I know that I've been making it so far and you think that I'm wonderful and amazing and can hold my own, but actually I am struggling on the inside and I finally have words to describe how and why that's happening. And that's what a self-diagnosis is missing. Yeah, good. I mean, not that there is a good or- <laughs> I'm so very I mean, firmly split on it. It's so, it's so <laughs> tough because I'm very firmly in the middle about that. Um, one, one thing that I really like and you transitioned it perfectly was how you changed your business in a way that it was already headed because of your diagnosis to also help other people. And I say that because I was a financial planner before I was Mm -hmm. diagnosed and I changed my business to really focus on an underserved population, right? That I felt like uh, a pat, like, you know, just like a calling to lack of a really better term. And I, you know, wanting to help people who like, literally what you said, couldn't afford it, needed it just, and I want, and I know, I mean, my business is called play across spectrum. There's no chance I would have started that if I wasn't. And one of the hardest things with starting, it was also telling my own story, right. Was that was a part of why people may want to work with me. So just how did you, how did your business or your career change like before and after diagnosis? And is it mostly the same? Cause you're, you have a pretty, you cover a fair amount of areas, right? And your PhD is not in autism, right? Yeah. It's still in something else. Technology, so yeah. if you want to just talk about like the direction you're headed yeah. and how that's changed. So um, I did not know that I'd be starting my own private practice. So, and this all became clear because I'm autistic. And now that I know I'm autistic, I'm like, duh, that makes a lot of sense. But I, I went through school for a very long time. And this is like a running joke in my circle. So I graduated with like 430 credits, one bachelor's degree, but like enough to where if, if I'd gone for like one more semester, I'd have like four or five because I just kept changing my major over and over again. I truly had no idea where I'd end up in life because I just genuinely loved everything. I could see myself doing everything, but then the passion would fizzle out and I'd move on to the next thing. Like so autistic, right? Um, Um, And then I just kind of happened in this field um, because I was in a law program. I was in a a pre-law, like a legal studies bachelor's program. And the provost called me and is like, listen, you've been here for too long. This is the degree that you're going to get now. (laughs) I was like, well, I guess (laughs) it's my life now. So I got my bachelor's and I was like, well, I need to go to law school, right? (laughs) That's the next thing. And um, I was planning on going to law school and some things happened. Uh, I, I was adopted and I had a department of children and families fee waiver and it wouldn't cover law school at the time, like graduate school. So I was like, what can I do that's cheaper? I want to work in policy and law, right? And so I went to get a master's in social work. I'm like, I had a social worker when I was little. I can do this. 
And then I ended up in this program. I'm like, oh, this is therapy. I literally had no idea. Ended up being really good at it. Ended up really loving it. And I was like, well, I can work in policy when I get out. This is, this is, I can still do the same thing. And then I fell into therapy, like, ma- like micro one-on-one work. And I was like, wow, I'm actually really good at this. I could read people really well. And now that I have my autism diagnosis, I'm like, oh, I understand that that's something I had to learn very early. Like I read people very quickly and adjust myself very quickly to meet their needs. And that actually ended up being like this amazing superpower I have. And I'm so good at therapy because of it. And I'm so thankful for that. And so when I, so I recently left a a previous job that's more macro, it was more of like an administrative type uh, social work job. And I got into doing psychotherapy um, this past year more more frequently, like full-time therapy instead of part-time. And then I was like, you know what, I, being my autistic self, I'm like, what's the next thing? I'm already bored. Like, what can I do now? And I was like, start my own business. <laughs> so I was like, here's my practice. And I just immediately knew um, that I would have these two very different sides to the practice. So it's called Share of Florida. So sexual health and recovery empowerment of Florida. And so sexual health is just all things under that umbrella, you know, LGBT issues, couples, families, all of that, and then recovery empowerment. And what I pictured when I wrote in recovery empowerment was really just meeting anyone where they're at in terms of their recovery in general. And I felt like that included recovering from masking and recovering from this neurotypical world that we've been walking through silently, not even realizing it. And that included, you know, grief and loss and anxiety and depression and, and OCD and eating disorders. And because it's all inclusive, like it, a lot of times when you're autistic, you're not just autistic. There's a lot more that goes along with it. And so I felt like this is just a very natural a natural way that I move forward with that. And um, I work with other wonderful community providers and we work on the, the evaluation together. And we make sure that again, that it's across interdisciplinary fields and that everything's being met and that you get one hell of an evaluation afterwards because I just want people to have the, the most precise answer for them. Cause that's what I needed at the time. A really precise answer that was really logical and that left out no questions. And that's what I try to provide. And that's just a very natural course a natural way that I ended up here. What do you think is the most helpful thing during an autism evaluation? Uh, when I did mine, there was there were so many layers to it. There were like interviews with the family. There were like a questionnaire that I would fill out, and then like my husband would fill out about me, uh, mm-hmm. so we could compare our answers. Yeah. Uh, then there were, of course, the you know observation. Then there were like the cognitive test. I mean, there's so many tests. What do you think is the most useful out of those? And do you think any of those could be like maybe? you know, put away. I also did the, I can't pronounce it, the ink test, the Rochart, is that what you said? Rorschach. Yeah. She she said like, there's no evidence for it, but she was very curious just for her her own. And she noticed that I, you know, I didn't see a lot of people in the ink. I I would see like dogs and animals instead of people interacting, uh, which, you know, the little research there was about it, like was, but yeah, she didn't use that as (laughs) <laughs> but she was curious. Anyway, all of that to say, what what uh, what do you think Useless. is the most important part of the evaluation? The most important. Um, that's really tough to answer. Um, I really do believe in every component of the evaluation because it's all so important. Because if you take away any bit of that, you're really missing just an important chunk of information or important viewpoint. So, for example. If I'm just getting a self-report, I'm just getting your perspective, which could be, like I mentioned earlier, if you are reading something, sometimes we read into things a little bit too much, or we like, we try to justify a little bit. That's a very natural human thing to do. And so sometimes we might score really, really high or even really, really low if we're not paying attention to a lot of our our symptoms, right? Um, So having other people who can complete those same things and then comparing, so imperative. The observation, so important, because what you're telling me, I could be seeing something totally different in real life. Um, Getting 
friends and family members also super important. Like for example, if it's two parents, it's really interesting for me to see how two separate parents respond on those questionnaires because I can see who's like more absent than the other. Like that's really an interesting dynamic to kind of play into. Um, I think I truly believe in the evaluative process that we have right now. I can't think of just based off of what, how I complete the evaluations, I can't think of anything that I would do differently. So for me personally, I try to do the first meeting in home if possible, um, assuming they're not on like the other side of the state. And I don't know if a lot of clinicians do that, but I, before I meet anyone, I try not to talk to them on the phone for very long. I try to have a very fresh first, first view of them in their environment. I, I ask them to give me a tour of their house and I see how they walk around the house, how they describe things, how they move um, when they don't think they're being watched because they don't think the evaluation has started yet. So I try to catch them before they even know like what our relationship is gonna be. And then we sit down and we talk about everything. And that's just our first meeting. We just kind of, I go over the DSM, all those things. Um, and, and this is, you know, after they've completed a, a self-report because I don't want to taint the self-report in any way. And at that point I, I determine, okay, maybe we'll get this family member or this or that. And then we kind of go from there depending. Um, and then there's also, you know, do they need to go to a neurologist for a brain scan or is there other like community providers who will just strengthen the test even more or strengthen the evaluation even more? And then we kind of go from there. And it also depends on what are their final like hopes for the evaluation. Are they trying to get test accommodations? Are they trying to just have this for themselves? It is, you know, what, what is the purpose of it too? And that kind of determines how the, the flow of the evaluation will go as well. I really like the watching them before the actual evaluation yeah. thing. My uh, surprise. My, but well, the person who diagnosed me, uh, in, you know, I did a therapeutic assessment. So at the end, she, I don't know if you've heard of them. They were created by uh, Stephen, Stephen Finn. Um, you can Google it. It's very interesting. But at the end of the assessment, the psychologist writes you a letter, like to you, like it's, it's personal. And anyway, in the letter the, she was telling me, I noticed the first signs before we even started the evaluation because I was watching you in the waiting room and you were just like rocking back and forth uh, while waiting for me to, you know, escort you from the waiting mm -hmm. room to the, and I think that is like such a smart thing to do. You know, you observe people like in their envir environment when they don't know they're being watched because yeah. that's when they're like the natural, I guess, you know, and because once you're in the room, I feel like you're almost like more likely to like mask and, you know, like put on a show yeah. or so. Yeah, and, and I and I've actually caught it where it's the flip of that, and this is why I really like doing that because they won't. They'll just be on their own, just appearing, quote unquote, normal, whatever that is. Um, and then when they get in the room, they think the evaluation started. That's when you'll see certain behaviors. And that for me, I can tell at that point is it someone just seeking a title or is it someone who is legitimately on the spectrum? And so I kind of keep that in mind too. Is this like, and then I, I use that to compare with the assessments. Like, is there huge gaps in the assessments, like in certain areas or, you know, is the self-report, is it accurate? You know, that's, that's great. And, I, and also like a flip side too, is it's really funny. So when I was first diagnosed, um, I didn't believe it for a little while or a, a while. Cause like, how is it so obvious? And I had a lot of stereotypical yes. signs, right? Uh, with, with minus one, I have aphantasia. So the opposite of seeing in pictures. So that was confusing. But then um, the other part was, oh, I don't have a routine, do I? Or I'm not anxious <laughs> because I've never known, didn't know. What know. not having anxiety is like, I've always, you know, like I was, I was talking to somebody I'm, I'm actually hiring and I'm like, so convinced they're ADHD. And they're like, but I think everyone else is lying if they say they don't answer questions this way, right? Because it's just like who they are. Like I said, I don't have a routine or I'm not anxious or, you know, what that's just all I, I've ever known. So yeah. to me, it's, it's different. Like that's why having an assessment from someone else is important because 
Like I have such a strict routine. It's insane. Yeah. But yeah. I didn't think I did. I didn't think I had one at all. Well, so. nobody's ever pointed it out to you, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so interesting because when I was 16, I, so in my teen years, I had some very tumultuous times and I went, um, I went to seek some help and they said that I had OCD and I really believe that because it, it was very apparent that, that that would be as a clinician, I'd be like, okay, that makes sense. It's a pretty obvious diagnosis for the time. But now in hindsight, I'm like, oh my God, that's, you know, that's not OCD. All of that is autism. And had that, had that person been educated on how girls, teen girls would present with autism, I could have had my diagnosis at 16 and probably would have had so much help and had a completely different, you know, young twenties life completely. So it's just interesting. There's so many things that I had done in my childhood that even now I'll get a flash of a memory and be like, what? Oh my God. It's like so obvious. Like, how did I not put that together? <laughs> Which one comes to mind when you say that? Or oh, when you I just can't, thought I about can't, that? I can't even get started. Uh, I don't put you know on where the to spot. Start. It's okay. It's, it's like, so first of all, I have this thing. I didn't even realize I was doing this, but um, so a very specific story. And I literally, sometimes when I can't fall asleep, I still remember this. You guys have those moments where you're like, oh, why that happened? So like, <laughs> yes. I've always felt like a step behind. Like, I just like, always like, ah, like <laughs> a step behind everyone. And I remember I was up in New York. And I was visiting with my grandmother and my uncle and my uncle, my, my grandfather unfortunately passed away and my uncle was living, like moved in with my grandmother to help her. And we were upstairs and he was, he likes to tease really hard. Like he's a hard teaser. It's a very like, like middle-aged Italian man thing to do. You know, I don't know if you guys know that culture at all, but so he'd be teasing me all the time and like really borderline could be mean, you know, but like, it's funny, it's fine. Ha ha. And, uh, and then I had like taken it a step too far. Like I was trying to like keep up and like respond to it. And I had said something that I was like, oh, this will be funny. Like, haha, but he didn't laugh. And it was, it was super, like, I still think about it. It was really, it was really mean. Um, and I didn't mean it. It's not like I had any, it, there was nothing behind it. I was just trying to keep up with that situation. And it was just like moments like that my entire life, like being a step behind, just trying to keep up with the conversation or the jokes or the thing, just trying to like fit in. And it's, it's moments like that, that really stick out that I just can't take back. And, and I, I've never had a conversation with him about my autism. I don't even know if he knows I'm autistic actually. Um, but I'd love to be able to use that story as an example. But a part of me is fearful to bring that up because I feel like a guy like him would be like, oh, you're totally fine. You're not autistic, you know, like, be, like, you know, and so it's just th those moments stick out so bright in my mind and it's just painful it makes me cringe before falling asleep it's like why the fuck did I say that oh sorry can I say that <laughs> yeah this is called oh, the adulting on the spectrum oh, say my fuck bad. all you want okay I'm also a uh, yeah there you go Eileen you have to curse too so it's all three of us can I do so. it in French sure oh, go for do. it please do Putain. <laughs> it's not so much nicer um so uh and it, Okay, we might, this part's been cut out. We might have to redo this twice because Eileen might kill me. But so Eileen, um, English not being her first language, she thought a sexologist meant like you give sex tips, I think kind of like a mixologist. And- um, <laughs> I'm about it, please keep this in. <laughs> yes, so she did not um, understand what you're going to school for. And honestly, other than I know it's not sex tips, um, I also don't know, really know what That's your okay. PhD involves. Um, so, and again, your practice covers a lot more than autism. And mm -hmm. I actually think that we have had more individuals mm -hmm. come on our podcast so far, and it's obviously not a statistical sample, but let's say we've had 10 so far. I think more than half have not been straight and so, they've all been autistic. Yeah. So there's definitely an overlap there. Oh my gosh. 
I have so much to say about this. Thank you so much for bringing it up. So first of all, to address your main concerns, <laughs> sometimes it does involve tips, but not like what you think. <laughs> Most of the time it's um, education, um, communication skills. Um, so sex, sexology, sex therapy, it's a very broad umbrella. It's literally anything that would fall under sexual health and wellness. So that could be couples struggling in their relationship. That could be a woman who was raped and is working through her sexual trauma. That could be um, a, a person working through their transgender journey. That could be someone who's gender nonconforming and really just working through their gender identity in general. It could be people on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. Like it's literally anything under the sexual health and wellness umbrella, which I know is really broad, but that's why it's share Florida. <laughs> it's everything under there. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes there's tips involved, you know, like, hey, read this book, see if you can take anything out of it. Um, but at the end of the day, a lot of, a lot of those clients end up being um, a lot of older people who tragically were not educated growing up and really think about that. You know, I think millennials and younger were very privileged to have the access of the internet. Um, hope, unfortunately, porn is more prevalent, but um, we have the access of the internet to be able to learn about our bodies and learn more than what's just presented in school, whether that be an abstinence only school or even just that really awful sex ed you get where you're like, women have periods and boys have penises. That's it, work with that. And so like, how are we supposed to expect civilization to know how to communicate feelings or emotions or how to have relationships appropriately. And that's where I come in. So the PhD is um, just a specialization, but it also ends up allowing me to also become board certified in sex therapy so that when I receive the PhD and the board certification, I can officially be a certified sex therapist and not just provide sexual health and wellness therapy. Um, so that's what that is. Um, but on your point, this is so fascinating because I've been following this and I definitely want to do some work in, in this realm in the future, especially when I um, work on my dissertation, but uh, autism, and uh, queerness in general, just, you know, the, the whole LGBTQ plus spectrum, um, gender issues, trans issues, that is very often overlapping. And I think that's so fascinating because I've always kind of pictured autistic people as being these like really cool evolutionary like aliens, like we're like the next step in, in evolution as being a human. Cause I feel like we're just really, really powerful. I know we struggle in certain areas in terms of like what the social norm is, but like that was created by neurotypical people. So I, you know, I think that we're the next step. Um, and that just makes me feel better. And so when I think about that, I think it's also really cool that we see a lot of um, trans people or gender non-conforming people or, you know, LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus people who are also autistic. Cause I feel like because they, because autistic people just kind of think differently, I feel like we're more open to alternative viewpoints and we're able to identify those parts of ourselves more frequently. And so I think that's really just cool. We're not as closed off. I feel like with neurotypical people, um, there's just a weight of societal norms on their shoulders. And so I feel like maybe they're less likely to understand those parts of themselves, or I don't know what the connection is, but I would really love to find out one day. Yeah, we yeah. love that too. I, uh, yeah. so cool. I came out last year as a bisexual. It's something I've- Welcome to the club. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. I've known about it for a while, but I just felt like so ashamed of it. And the fact yeah, that I'm married one. to a man, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm not allowed to say I'm bisexual because it's like, well, you're married to a man. So why, why does why it matter you, yeah. that you're bi, you know? Yeah. And I've tried joining some bisexual groups and, uh, well, not bisexual, but like LGBT stuff. And it's like the bisexual part of the community is just like, oh, yeah. I was like, okay, well, maybe I'm not ready to talk about this part of myself yet because I felt, I feel like every group I belong yeah. to, which is being autistic, being bi, uh, I'm, I don't, I don't belong. Like there is always yeah. like some sort of, I, I don't know. stigma there. Yeah. I was married to a man previously and I'm very open with that. Um, I am very proudly bisexual. I refuse to say anything otherwise um, I, because it is important for that representation for that exact reason that you just said, Eileen. Um, I 
had been with him for six years. And so most of my friends like kind of only knew me to, like, I had gotten married a little too young, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> and so most of my friends only knew me, me during that period. And so they didn't even realize that I was bisexual and, and my friends and fa- even my family, cause I'd been out since I was 14, even my family, I feel like they just kind of like forgot about it. Like, oh, whew, we, we worked that one out. She married a man. It's totally fine. <laughs> We're going to be okay. Like, I feel like that's what happened. Yeah. And so when I got divorced, I started dating and I was dating men and women because I'm bisexual and I'm just, you know, I follow where my attraction goes. And when I started dating my current wife publicly, I had the worst time. And that's when I really knew because at this point I was older, you know, when you're, when you're a teen and you say you're bisexual, everyone just kind of rolls their eyes, like whatever. Um, But now that I'm, I was in my later twenties and now I'm dating this woman publicly, everyone's like, oh, you turned lesbian, you're gay now. And I'm like, that's not how that works. I've always been bisexual. You people especially have known this. I didn't just like wake up and decide to be gay. Like that's not how that works. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's rough out there. It's because the majority of the gay community thinks you're dirty. Uh, the lesbian community thinks you're dirty and the majority of the straight community just thinks that you're you know attention seeking taking attention seeking greedy i hear that all the time you're just greedy or that you they think you're like promiscuous so you'll just fuck anything that walks like that's yeah, just that's not how true. that works like granted some people are polyamorous and i do therapize some of those people who may need it but um and that's <laughs> totally fine and lovely but not every bisexual person is going to be polyamorous it's not how that and, works and to clarify not every polyamorous person bisexual. needs you. therapy no thank you just yes. because they are poly i, I don't think you meant <laughs> Thank you for the clarification. Yes. Thank you. Of course. uh, Very open to anything. Of course. Yes. Um, In fact, I think uh, I'm going to go as far as saying I think polyamorous relationships are sometimes the best relationships because at the end of the day, polyamorous people, all it is is communication and love. Like it's not that you're unable to commit. It's that you're committing to everyone that that you find in your heart to to be with at that time. So I think that's lovely. We we had an advocate, uh, Jillian, whose podcast isn't out yet, who was uh, poly and an autistic advocate. And she really talked about it awesome a lot and it was really um no it it was enlightening because it's not what like you might think right not knowing anything and being like just you know a white guy me right it was was, even it was open it it was very uh enlightening yeah I have a very dear friend of mine who's very proud and open polyamorous person and I just live so vicariously through her I'm like get it girl (laughs) so so happy for you tad bit jealous (laughs) so we're friends on Facebook uh Dolly even though we've never spoken before and you shared a meme that was something along the lines of you like instantly can know like where an actor or actress mm-hmm. was from in like a TV show. And like, I'm like, oh my God, there's somebody else like this because a meme was made about it and shared. <laughs> like me and my yeah. wife, like we do the same thing. So can you talk about that? And does it go as far as voice or just oh, looks? Are you ready for this? Buckle yes, up. please, please. This is the most useless superpower I have. I really wish I got the math gene like you, Andrew. I, I told, uh, <laughs> oh man, this is so funny. And it does go to voices and I'll explain how in a second. So, and this only extends to movies I have seen. So this, this would be whatever, I mean, I do watch a ton of movies, but this is only limited to actors that I, I have personally seen in movies. But uh, I'm telling you, it does not matter how much makeup they have on, have on, what type of disguise they have, how young or old they are. Within seconds, I'd be like, oh, that's that guy from that thing. And they're like, no, it's not. I'm like, no, no, I promise you, that's that guy from that one thing. And they're like, Mm-mm. and I'm like, IMDb. <laughs> it's like, it's an ongoing competition in my household. IMDb, IMDb that. And I'm right every single time. And it went as far as just recently, we were watching Friends. I had never seen Friends that I remembered growing up. I don't think I had. And Kate, I, I know, I've had a <laughs> weird, I watched some weird stuff growing up. But um, 
had never seen Friends growing up. And so I was rewatch I was watching Friends and, and my wife was rewatching and we watched them all back to back. And there's this one scene where Phoebe's in the coffee shop playing her guitar and this blonde woman comes in and she starts playing with her. And I'm like, that's Tommy Pickles from Rugrats. And Katie's like, what? And I'm like, that's Tommy Pickles from Rugrats. I am deeping it. <laughs> and I shit you not. This blonde middle-aged woman who did not have the voice of Tommy Pickles from Rugrats was in fact Tommy Pickles from Rugrats from when I was like in, in kindergarten or whatever. And I'd watch Rugrats in kindergarten. And I was right. It's so funny. And I love it. I like, I, I live for that. Like finding, I've never been wrong. <laughs> so, but so actually like literally within a half hour, like prior to this podcast, I was talking about uh, Comedy Central roasts mm-hmm. and we were talking about like people in them and I'm like, oh yeah. And I'm talking to my wife. I'm like, oh yeah. And that really skinny chick yeah. comedian. Whitney Cummings. We're like, how did we like both? How did she know? Exactly? Yeah. I just said that really skinny chick. Yeah. Like, so, I mean, Whitney I Cummings is really skinny. Yeah. But um, I, was talk- I was talking to my partner the other day and I was like, you know, like, like Dave Buscemi. And she's like, do you mean Pete Davidson? Because <laughs> I said Dave Buscemi. And she knew that Steve Buscemi, who has the weird eyes, and Pete Davidson were the same person. But I meant Pete Davidson, even though I said Dave Buscemi. Like, that's got to be a marriage thing, right? Yeah, no, exactly. No, 100%. No, it was just like, or not even, or just knowing, like, I don't know if your partner has at least a similar skill. I think, so mine, my wife is definitely better than me with it. But the difference is we, we both watch different TV shows. Mm. We have an ongoing joke, though, that like the one show that we really haven't seen that I haven't seen of hers is Desperate Housewives. So if you can't (laughs) remember where somebody's from, but I don't know either. We're like Desperate Desperate Housewives. Housewives. Yeah. So (laughs) um, combined forces. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Usually between one of us, like we can like get it or like watching like the Death Note movie. I'm like William Dafoe or just like, (laughs) you know, I don't even. Yeah. But I can't tell you beforehand just like. Yeah, I, I, hey, yeah. we can't be the only ones. There was we a meme There's about be a whole it. Communicate. Yeah, yes. whole community there behind needs this. to be a Facebook group or something. Yeah, so <laughs> thank you, Eileen, for bearing with us on that one. So, okay. No, that, that's great. That's a great skill. I, I have the opposite. <laughs> Your sarcasm is overflowing. <laughs> it's not sarcasm. It's a great skill. Often I see like I'm like I know this person, and then it drives me crazy because I can't remember from where I know the person. You know, I have the opposite yeah. issue. Um, so I have to go like to IMBD, look at the person and then make sure that I'm like, oh yeah, it's from there. So it's great. Whoever invented IMDB, like chef's kiss. I think, I think Jeff Bezos owns them now because Amazon owns IMDB. So really? Yeah. 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 Sorry, Dolly. <laughs> I have many thoughts. <laughs> okay. Anyway. All right. I just do this quick fire question. So it's uh, kind of easy. Okay. I think I ask <laughs> you a question. Rough. And you answer <laughs> first it's thing that comes to your mind. Oh, no. Oh, I hope it's not the same thing over and over again. I get really nervous on the spot. I'm really terrible at trivia or like uh, Family Feud. I love Family Feud on my own. But like if we're board games in general, I'm the absolute worst on like Family Game Night. So I'll do my best. Oh, see, I'm the worst at Family Game Night because I am the most competitive person on the planet. My wife got very mad at me a few weeks ago. Because I was playing Candyland with my three and a half year old daughter. <laughs> and well, not just that, but I'm like, I was pretty sure those were the rules. And I think my wife was trying to like hint at me, like, just let her win. It's Candyland. I'm like, you won't let it's me see the rules. Value to instill in our children that they're, it's okay to fail. But I'm like, it's, you need to follow the rules. How can we follow the rules if I don't know what they are? So we let my daughter win Candyland. Well, sometimes I, you have to let your daughter win, okay, Andrew? She's like four. <laughs> 
for me, I'm okay. competitive, but also I'm always a step behind. And all my friends choose these like unnecessarily complicated like games, obscure games that we have like a whole cabinet of these random games, and they always pick the worst ones. And I'm like, guys, I can't play this with you. I'm gonna be miserable the whole time. And also I'm competitive, so I'll just be cussing at you the whole time. So I'm just gonna get a drink, hang out over here. I'll see you later. That's how I play games. You're talking to Eileen, who is a professional poker player, by the way. Are you but... really? Well, not anymore, Fantastic. but I used to be. Yeah. Wow. Good times. I guess that's kind of cliche of autistic people, isn't it? Like, anyway. All right. Quick fire questions. Okay. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Okay. Uh, there's, you can always succeed. There's always a way. Find a way or make one. What do you like to do to relax? Literally nothing. My ideal day is doing literally nothing. I will lay on the bed or the couch and not move at all. In silence and darkness is my ideal day. That's how I would like to spend my birthday. <laughs> Do absolutely well, well, you're easy at least. <laughs> we'll send a message to your wife. Oh, she knows. <laughs> That's good. What's your favorite food? Um, sushi. Asian food. In- the whole, the whole group sushi. of Asian food in general, I can't really say what is my favorite. I love all Asian food, no matter what the background is. It's delicious what's your favorite movie okay i don't have one i literally was just talking to my wife about this last night because i knew not you specifically but i was like hey i hope nobody ever asks me this question and you just <laughs> did so i'm glad that we took care of Sorry. that um we are working on my top 10 currently um in that top 10 it's not finalized in no particular order it's forest gump eternal sunshine of the spotless mind jurassic park for a lot of different reasons those are the top three so far but i'm, I'm oh midnight in paris but the whole issue with that is who directed it uh, but i do love the simplicity and beauty of that movie um it's a great fall asleep movie um jurassic park cinem- cinematography wise is fantastic and obviously they totally just changed the game in terms of tvs and film but sorry this is like one of my things so i'm just not gonna get into that anymore <laughs> oh what's your favorite tv show um oh god Ugh, that's an even worse question i don't have one Ugh. you can give <laughs> a bunch okay. No, there's just so there's just so many for many different reasons. So I'm a very like I'll watch something for like a feeling or for like a reason. And so I have like there's something for everything. And I, I I just don't have a favorite. I just truly love watching TV and film. And I love watching different director style and different cinematography. And I love catching like, oh, man, I love that shot they used or like, oh, that lighting they chose was so perfect. Like, that's why I watch TV and film. So I just think that's so fantastic. So I don't really have a favorite because it, it'll hurt my soul to, to name off anymore. F- favorite TV show that has an autistic character. Ooh. Okay. Um, and this is for nostalgia reasons for probably Gilmore Girls. And again, these are all like autistic coded people, I would sure. say. Okay. Um, Oh, what was one recently? Oh, I watched one recently. I was like, man, that was so good. They're so autistic. What was it? Claws. No. The bridge. There wasn't many that I've watched where they have been like in writing script wise autistic, like in character. Yeah. I, I like catching like that person's autistic. Like I watched, I, I really like House. I feel like he's, pro- he's probably autistic. Um, yeah. And that's from like forever ago. I think that's a fun drama to binge watch and get sucked into. Um, uh, Grey's Anatomy. I love Christina Yang. She's probably my autistic hero. Um, I watched all 17 years of that during quarantine. That was perfect quarantine. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have something to admit. I have seen every single episode as well. And sadly, it started before quarantine. Oh, <laughs> I have an excuse then. <laughs> I <only think> <laughs> Yeah, can you imagine watching, at the time, it was 16 years, my, my poor wife. So another God. issue that I have when it comes, I'm very specific with my film and movies. Like, if I start something, I got to finish it, and it's all-consuming. So I walked downstairs probably a week into quarantine last year, and Katie had just, like, put on, sorry, I keep saying her name, 
my wife had put on um like the, she was like probably a couple episodes into the first season just like as background tv as she was working and i i just kind of sat down I was like oh what is this and then poor thing 16 seasons worth and I'm like this one was on you you put it on you should know that i would walk out eventually this is your fault <laughs> so, um and you just have your new practice in Florida yeah. and you're, you're diagnosing other people. So if other people are being like, oh man, I identify with the lady from Bugs Burgers or I might be yeah. autistic or, or just whoever, if somebody wants to contact you, reach you, where can they find you and you how can, can they contact you? Shareofflorida.com. Florida spelled out. I didn't think about it when I made the domain. <laughs> so it's not FL, it's Florida. That's my dog, by the way, if you can hear her. Sorry. No, she waited for the end of the podcast. Smart yeah. girl. Good. Yeah. So... Yeah. Thank you so much. Really appreciate okay, you, you coming on. You were great. Thank you all so much for having me. I've really appreciated being here and getting to know all of you and having this conversation. I don't get to speak to a lot of autistic people often. And you kind of mentioned this in the beginning, Andrew, how I'm not really on social media. And and it's just, I feel like really overwhelmed in those chats, those groups. I feel like there's a lot of things. And and as a clinician, it's hard to see a lot of it. And, and as an autistic person, it's also hard to see some of those other things. So I just feel like this has been a really great safe space to be able to like finally connect and talk about things with people. So I really appreciate it. Anytime. Do it anytime with you guys. Uh, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you.